0: Today's scripture reading will be from Hebrews 7, 1-3. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without Ge- genealogy without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank Thanks God. Thanks, Isaac. Awesome job with that name, buddy. <laughs> well, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to see everybody. Welcome to Disciples Church. We're incredibly glad that you have joined us in worship this afternoon. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dave Hahn. Um, It is my privilege today uh, to be able to open God's word with and for you. So as Isaac read, we will be in Hebrews 7. We're actually going to look at the whole of Hebrews 7, but I just wanted Isaac to read those first three verses, uh, and you'll you'll kind of see why as we go. So on Saturday, July 8th, 2017, I got my last speeding ticket. I'd knock on wood if that did any good, but it doesn't. Uh, The scene of the crime was the city of Palmyra, which is near Whitewater, if you're unfamiliar. And my family and I were traveling back from a baseball tournament in that city. So I looked up in my rearview mirror as we traveling through Palmyra, and I saw the red and blue lights just spinning, and I'm thinking, oh, this isn't for me, is it? What did I do? Seth, our son, who is now 14, was 10, so he thought it was awesome. Sheila was sitting next to me quietly judging, as all wives do. And for me, not believing that I was his intended target, I pulled aside to create a clearer path for the officer to be able to apprehend the true criminal. Unfortunately, he did not pass by. And so I began preparing my case and praying, as we all do, for a verbal warning. Officer Leo, Palmyra's finest, came to my window, introducing himself and telling me what it was that I had done wrong. I had exceeded the posted speed limit, and I was in a school zone, although because it was July, school was not in session. Uh, I tried to explain that I was unfamiliar with this town. I was just kind of passing through. I was also unfamiliar with the speed limit signs. And really, my eyes were more focused on my phone because I kind of needed to know where to turn and where to go and all of those kinds of things. I wasn't texting or anything. I was looking to see where where I was supposed to be going. So seemingly, unaffected by my story, Officer Leo went back to his car to decide what he was going to do. I think usually if officers are going to give a warning, they will tell you, Um, but I still had hope. In that moment... I found myself at the mercy of Officer Leo and his decision. It's a terrifying and a humbling place to be, but that's part of being a citizen, right? As citizens, we are all subject to laws and the penalties for breaking those laws. Every kingdom, every nation has laws, it has lawmakers, and it has law keepers including the kingdom of God. And at their core, if we assume best intent, laws are meant for the good of all people by those who create them and those who keep them. Laws are necessary to maintain order, to settle disputes, and to protect rights of their citizens. And like everything else that is good in this world, laws are God's idea. Even though man's laws... Don't always line up with God's laws. We discussed earlier in Mark, the book that we have been in, that the Bible has over 600 commandments derived from 10 commandments, which can be really summarized by two commandments. And all of this combined is what we would refer to as the law. Do you remember what Jesus said the two great commandments were in Mark 12? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in Matthew's account, Jesus finishes by saying, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So every time we break one of God's laws, we sin by not having loved God and or not having loved another. And in our sin, Our true nature is revealed. Pastor, author, and theologian R.C. Sproul said it this way, We are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. Sin is a human nature problem. It is an identity problem. And in the book of Romans, we are told that apart from Christ... We are all slaves to sin with no choice but to obey its demands on us while living largely unaware of the shackles that have been placed around us or the cruel master who rules us. But for Christians, things are different. We have been given a new identity, In Christ, freed from the power and the penalty of sin. And when we sin, it's as though we're experiencing an identity crisis, forgetting who we are and who we belong to. That we are new creations with a new master, and it is no longer sin who has mastery over us, but Christ and his righteousness. So, where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us with two things a responsibility to the law and a response to it. If we look at Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, you can look that up later. We will learn two things that are critical to our understanding of our responsibility to the law. First, God has revealed himself and his wrath against us, it is no secret that he has made himself known through that which is visible, Paul says. Second, because God has revealed himself and his wrath has been revealed against us, we are without excuse. Though we know God, you and I live as though he does not. And in doing so, we sin. And we break God's law. And because we have broken his law, the Bible says that we deserve death. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. God has established his law. We are responsible to obey his law and receive the prescribed punishment when we break that law. Friends, God demands perfection, and he expects complete and utter obedience to his law. And according to James 2, breaking just one of God's law makes us guilty of breaking all of it. Now, in addition to our responsibility to the law, we each have a response to the law. One response is to make excuses and to justify ourselves. When I got pulled over, I tried to help Officer Leo see my side of things. Later on, when I talked with others about what had happened, they tried to make me feel better about it, blaming the officer's poor judgment and the fact that school wasn't technically in session when I got pulled over to try to make me feel better about things rather than blaming me for my inattentive driving. We do this with God's laws and God's commands too, don't we, not just speeding tickets. We love, love to blame others. They're why I did that. I wouldn't have said that if they didn't say this. Blaming others Makes us feel better about the decisions that we have made because we know we have done something wrong. And this practice of blaming others goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Do you remember? In Genesis 3, when Adam stood by and he watched his wife eat the fruit that had been forbidden them, God Knowing what they had done, confronted Adam. And Adam said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Did you hear it? In this response, Adam blames both God and Eve. The woman you gave me, she gave it to me. She made me eat it. No fault of his own, right? In addition to blaming others, we also try to justify ourselves by comparing ourselves with one another. It's as though God grades on a curve. Now, as a straight C student, I love the curve, right? I was always praying that the smart kid would blow it so I had a chance at something. But unfortunately, that is not how God works. If we're going to follow that scholastic metaphor, God is not a curve guy. He's pass-fail. Lastly, we often allow our personal happiness, our fleshly desires, and our feelings to become primary over the word of God. Because we do not like when God says no to something that we want. And in doing so, we make ourselves God instead of him. Tim Keller, author and pastor, said it this way. If your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So here's what that looks like. We justify our decisions by thinking, well, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. Clearly he wouldn't want me to be unhappy falsely believing that God is more interested in our happiness than he is our holiness. Or we pretend that the Bible is this antiquated thing or irrelevant to our time and culture and it really needs to catch up with the times as though the Bible should adapt to and with us or that our time and our place is the ultimate reality. Friends, we can stop making excuses. We can stop justifying ourselves, or blaming others, or ignoring God's word, there is a second response to the law. Admit our guilt and plead for mercy. Admit our guilt and plead for mercy. Recognizing our standing before a holy and righteous God, understanding that we have broken His holy law and fallen short of His righteous demands, and then turning from sin... That big church word, repent, right? And then seek forgiveness. But these two responses, justification and blaming and making excuses and antiquating the Bible versus confession and repentance and pleading for mercy are completely opposites. They couldn't be further apart. As we discussed last week, one attitude is rooted in pride and foolishness and the other in humility, and in wisdom. But Dave, how do we avoid pride and foolishness and instead be humble and wise and right with God? Well, it's a great question, and I'm really glad you asked it. It actually leads to our passage for today in Hebrews 7. So we did talk earlier about kingdoms having laws and lawgivers and lawkeepers. Well, in the kingdom of God, just to be clear, God alone is lawgiver. There is no senate, there is no congress, there is no assembly. And the priests and the religious leaders, as God designated them, are to be lawkeepers, not lawmakers. And the chief of all lawkeepers is the high priest. In Hebrews chapter 5, we actually learn about the qualification and duties of a priest. First, priests had to be descendants of Aaron, Aaron being Moses' brother. And they were to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, people who sinned ignorantly and people who sinned willfully. Second, priests were to offer gifts and sacrifices for their sins, including their own sins. And on Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, which was the center of the temple, to make atonement for his own house and for the people of Israel. And he would go into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his ankle, so that if he went in in an unworthy manner and he passed away, somebody would have to pull him out because nobody could go in to get him. That was what forgiveness looked like for the Jewish people on the day of Yom Kippur. The ultimate reason For the priesthood, as God gave it, was to have one who would represent us before God. Something in us knows deep down that we are separated from God and we need someone to draw us near. And the writer of Hebrews mentions throughout this letter one such priest, a man named Melchizedek. So apart from having an odd name, we don't know much about Melchizedek. He does appear four times throughout Scripture. In Genesis 4, where the bulk of what we read in Hebrews 7 comes from, Psalm 110 and Hebrews 5, in addition to Hebrews 7. And his unusual name, we learn, has significant meaning. In verse 2 of our passage today, we learn that his name means king of righteousness. And in verse 1, we learn that his title, his position, was king of Salem. Salem being derived from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. King of righteousness is his name. King of peace is his title. And verses 4 through 10 tell us that Melchizedek was a high priest before there were priests. There was no such thing as the priesthood when Melchizedek was called king and priest. He is the only example in the Old Testament of someone being both a king and a priest that we're aware of, and that is significant. You see, kings were lawgivers, but priests were friends of lawbreakers, and they dealt gently with their weaknesses. Kings represented God to the people while priests represented people to God. Kings spoke of justice and truth, and priests spoke of compassion and grace. And we as people need both. We need a king and we need a priest. But in verses 11 through 17 of Hebrews 7, we learn that there are problems with this priesthood, with the priesthood, with its priests and with the law that they tried to keep. Verses 11 through 17 reads, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So in these verses we find the four problems with the priesthood with the priests and with the law that they tried to keep. The first problem we find in verse 11, perfection could not be attained through the priesthood. Do you remember that just one sin, committing one sin willfully or ignorantly, makes us guilty of breaking the whole thing? That God does not grade on a curve? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount is where we find Jesus saying to people, He must be perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. In verse 12 of Hebrews 7, we find our second problem, that a change in the priesthood requires a change in the law. Only Levites, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, could be priests, but Melchizedek was before all the tribes, including the tribe of Levi, and yet he was a priest, though he was a priest of a different order. Melchizedek was a precursor to one who, like him, would not be a Levitical priest or a descendant of Aaron. Rather, he would come out of the tribe of Judah. And like Melchizedek, he would be honored as both priest and king. Does anybody come to mind? The third problem is found in verse 18. The law is weak and useless and cannot make anyone perfect. It's important to understand, friends, that the Bible and Jesus himself tell us that the law is not the problem, but that the problem is you and I. It's our inability and lack of desire to obey it. You see, the law is perfect and it has a job to do. And once it has done that job, it makes itself obsolete. Here's what I mean by that. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians chapter 3, said this, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law could not make us perfect, and it could not give us life. Rather, the law's job was to guard us until faith came. You know those um, backpack leashes that parents put on kids that are kind of wild? If you're a parent who has used one or currently uses one, I'm not judging you. And if you're a kid who wore a backpack leash, your parents love you. The backpack leash thing is a parent's way, really, of saying to their child, you're going to get killed, or you're going to kill somebody else if we don't put this on you. And the law is like that. It is for our protection and for the protection of others. The law's other job is to reveal our inability to obey. The speed limit sign in Palmyra showed me that I was breaking the law, but I was breaking the law long before I saw it. Finally, in our sin, the law's job is to point us to Christ. If the law is like that speed limit sign, Nobody would expect the sign to absorb our guilt when it was determined that we had exceeded its limit. In the same way, the law's job was to show us that we are sinful, that we are broken, that we have broken God's law, and then point to Jesus and say, it is him alone who can forgive you and clean you and make you new. So hear me on this. For we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the law. Do you hear me? We are no longer under the law. So quit trying to live as though you can obey it. As though by living clean, you can somehow justify yourself before God. Because Christ, for those who are in him, has fulfilled the law on our behalf. The law that we could not obey, Christ obeyed perfectly. And he imputes that perfection to us. And he now writes his law of love on our hearts. It is no longer just written on paper or stone. For we who are in Christ, the priesthood of the old covenant has become secondary because both priests and the law cannot make us right with God. The priests and the law cannot change hearts, nor can priests or the law make us new. But here's what the priesthood and the law and our religious efforts can do. First, they can get us to white-knuckle our way through sin. and get us to try harder, And promise that we will never do that thing again and with good intent while our behavior may change for a short while our hearts haven't changed we haven't been made new and in time we will drift right back to that same old sin secondly The priesthood and law and our religious efforts can teach us to be experts in religious observances and talk. We can get really good at playing church and keeping up appearances. Oh, I can say that. I can sing that. I can do that. I can go and eat and drink those things. All with no real heart change and no change in our affections. Friends, to operate that way is a silly exercise and an even sillier way, if I'm honest with you, to spend your Sundays. Finally, the priesthood and the law and our religious efforts can lead us to look down on others while in turn we elevate ourselves. Believing that we are somehow better off or well positioned than someone else. And friends, none of those things are what God is after. None of those things are why Jesus came. Do you know what he's after? And do you know why he came? He came to forgive us all our sins, past and present and future, with the old you nailed to the cross forever. He came to give us eternal life because sin killed us. Do you remember Romans 6? And what does a dead person need more than anything else? Life. And he came to make us new creations, with a new identity, and dwelling us by His spirit and giving us new hearts that long to love and obey him. And if the priesthood and the law could have done all that, Jesus could have stayed home. He could have stayed home. He didn't need to go through all of the things that he went through if the law and religion and priests and priesthoods could do all of those things. But that he came tells us that those things were not able to do in us what needed to be done. They were not able to forgive us and make us perfect and give us life and indwell us with God's spirit and make us righteous in his eyes. And here's the fourth And the final problem with the priesthood, according to verse 23, it's a big one. Priests die. That is a problem. It says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. It is funny how death will do that. It's really hard to continue in office when you're dead. Friends, God is saying that priests are people and people have limits, but God does not. And the writer of Hebrews wanted you and I to know everything and everyone that you hold dear are nothing compared to Christ himself. Whatever it is, whoever it is, Christ is better. And all that preceded Christ were simply shadows that pointed to the true form, Christ Himself. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. So, kids, when you guys hear the stories of Abraham and Moses and David and Ruth and Esther and all the rest, understand that the Bible is giving you a picture of what Jesus is like. But those Bible heroes are not the real heroes, they're not the real heroes. It is Christ in them who is the hero. So I began by telling you guys a story that I did not get to finish. I'm sure that some of you have been thinking, listen, enough about Melchizedek and priests already. Did you get a ticket or didn't you? So I will tell you what happened. Officer Leo went back to his vehicle. More than a few minutes went by. And I said to my wife, This is taking too long. I'm going to get a ticket for sure. And sure enough, he returned to my car with a $98 ticket and four points off of my license. No grace, no mercy, just bludgeoned with the law. <laughs> now, straight up, I, I deserve the punishment that I received, the law did its job. And the law keeper, in this case, Officer Leo, did his. Now, I still wanted to go to court because I know how the game is played. I was looking for what we would all want. Grace, mercy, release, or a point reduction and a lesser fine if none of those other things (laughs) were available. (laughs) So now... Imagine with me for a minute that I walked into the courtroom on my own that day. I didn't. But imagine that I did. You were there and you heard them review the charges against me. He was doing 40 miles an hour in a school zone, Your Honor. Mr. Hahn, what do you have to say for yourself? Are you guilty? And I say, I'm kind of, Your Honor. But I have something that I'd like to say. Oh, really? He answers, what is that? Well, your honor, if it pleases the court, that's a great line to use if you're in a court. I don't know what it means, but I know that it generates affection. (laughs) Well, your honor, if it pleases the court, let it be known that I haven't killed anybody. I haven't been with anyone other than my wife. I haven't stolen anything since that pack of gum at Treasure Island when I was eight years old. I've actually done pretty good, all things considered. I'm way better than a lot of the other jokers that are in the courtroom today. That'd be ridiculous, right? Well, that's not how things work in our less than perfect legal system. And yet, there are some within the sound of my voice who think they're going to stand before God one day... And lay out a case that demonstrates that they were justified in their sin or aren't that bad compared to somebody else. Do you really think, do you really think that Jesus took the nails and the crown of thorns and the beatings and the punishment for every sin so that you and I could stand there and tell him how awesome we are? Friends, do you realize that the brutality of the cross makes no sense if salvation depends on you and I? It is brutal without reason. And God will not hear your defense because we mock his son's death when we talk like that and when we think like that. Friends, the cross is as brutal as it is to show us how awful our sin is and how incapable we are of saving ourselves. There must have been no other way. We should look at that cross and think, that is how bad my sin is. And do you know that the cross's greatest brutality is actually not able to be seen? It's not in the nails or the crown or the lashes or the spitting or the flogging. It is found in this, that Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who never sinned, became sin for you and me. And experienced separation from God on our behalf. Do you know that that's what makes hell, hell? There is no person in this room, there's no person who has ever lived who can make that claim. No living being has ever known life outside of God's presence. Do you remember Romans chapter 1? God who is invisible has made himself known through that which is visible. No matter how far away God may seem to you, know that he is always near and that he is always present. Friends, Jesus took all the punishment that you and I deserve, every bit of it. Nothing left for you and for me. So yes, the cross of Christ cries out, this is how bad our sin is. But do you know that it also cries out, this is how much he loves you. This is how much he loves you. He was willing to do this for you. There is simply no greater evidence of God's love for you and for me than the cross of Christ. When you find yourself doubting God's love, look to the cross. There is no greater example. So now imagine with me again that same day in court and instead of my excuses, I respond with, I am guilty your honor. I'll pay the fine. And just then, somebody walks in and says excuse me dad, I'll pay Dave's fine. In fact, I'll take the blame and the punishment for every wrong thing he's ever done or ever will do. For the rest of his life. You see, he's my friend. He's my brother. And I love him that much. How incredible would that be? Now, if you're like me in that moment, You're not thinking about speeding tickets anymore. You're thinking about the stuff that you haven't been caught doing, or saying, or thinking. You're thinking about the stuff that no one else knows about. You might even be thinking, this guy doesn't know what he's signing up for. And you're likely struggling to believe that the judge will even go for an arrangement like that. I mean, who would do something like that for somebody else? Do you know the answer? Jesus. Only Jesus. No other religious people can claim that their God became one of them, died for them to forgive all their wrongs, and now lives in them. So when we believe that all religions are basically the same, we grossly misunderstand the gospel. Verse 26 of Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Several more claims that no other man can make. And yet this is the kind of king and priest that God's righteousness demands. Verse 27 says Jesus does not offer daily sacrifices for his sins in the people the way that the old priesthood did. Why? Because he is without sin. Christ's sacrifice was not for his sin, it was for yours and for mine. Do you remember Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? High priest, rope around his ankle, going in for the sins of the past year? Friends, Jesus did not just die for our past sins. He died for our sins of the present, and he died for our sins of the future as well. Because do you realize that all of your sins were future sins when Christ died? That means no more confession booths, no more penances, no more rituals or anything else that we think will get God to forgive us. I'm not bad-mouthing confession or bad-mouthing religious observances. They can be good and beautiful expressions. I am warning us against believing that forgiveness and right standing with God is dependent upon those things. They are not. They are not. Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice once and for all. What are we going to add to that? Finally, in verse 28, we are told that the law appoints weak men who die as priests. But God, according to verse 25, by his own word, appoints his son Jesus who lives and intercedes for us. That he lives Forever. And he intercedes on our behalf forever. And therein, my friends, lies the beauty of the gospel. Romans 8.3 says it this way. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. God did in Christ what nothing and no one else could. And we have no hope outside of him. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that you and I are so bad that Jesus had to save us. There was no other way. But He loves us so much that he was glad to do it. Christ alone is our king. And Christ alone is our priest. And it is through faith in him that we are saved and declared heirs in his kingdom. And priests in his kingdom. His everlasting kingdom. So friends, let us worship and honor and serve no one and nothing else above him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our King of righteousness, our King of peace and our high priest. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on our behalf That though you did not sin, you became sin for us. Though you are the author of life, you took death's blow so that we wouldn't have to. By your spirit, you have given us life. You have freed us from the power of sin. And we thank you that one day, we who are in Christ will be freed from sin's presence. Lord Jesus, awaken our hearts to your gospel. Show us that we cannot save ourselves and that we cannot earn what you died to give us. In our ignorance and our waywardness, draw us near to you. Though our hearts and our affections are fickle, you never tire of wooing us to your side. You always run to welcome us as a loving Father, and you clothe us in your righteousness, and you fit our fingers with rings that ensure that we are sons and daughters. You have prepared a feast of celebration for we who were once dead are alive again. We who were once lost have been found. You are God and you will not share your glory with another. In all that you have made in sending your son and in your promised return, you have shown yourself to be great amongst all things. We worship you and we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.